Friends, leading up to the Advent season, which, believe it or not, begins next Sunday, is the first Sunday of Advent. But our late fall series of messages, we've been looking at the salvation that God has revealed to us through Jesus. In fact, we take salvation often for granted, but Scripture tells us in the book of Hebrews, don't take it for granted Keep it in mind, pay it special attention, careful attention, lest we drift away in our faith. Lest we backslide, lest we stand still and let the culture of the world carry us along and the cares of this world steal our joy. That's our birthright as children in God's family. Hebrews chapter 2 remind you of our theme verse, verse 1 and 2. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, he's speaking of the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This great salvation we've looked at, began looking at it, as uh, the sin problem. To have salvation, you need to be saved from something. And that's the problem that all humanity faces. We live in a broken world. We are an outlaw nation. From our parents, Adam and Eve on, each one have sinned. There is none righteous, no, not one. Last time we looked at the world's answer. Good deeds. There's good in the world. We see it every day. And as long as the good you do outweighs the bad, you're going to do well. God will let you into His heaven however you conceive of it. But Scripture doesn't hold that out as a hope. That's man's answer, but that's not God's answer. Because Scripture reveals to us that the righteousness of man is like filthy rags in God's sight. We're not saved by good deeds. In fact, the Bible says the believers are saved in order to show God's love through those deeds and to point people to the love of God. Let them see Jesus through us. Well, if that's man's answer, today we want to focus closely on God's answer. Recently, I mentioned the verse in Scripture that talks about the, the scandal of the cross, the offense of the cross, and why people take offense at the cross of Jesus Christ. Well, part of what we said is just merely human pride. Nobody likes to be told that they're a sinner. We think, well, there's always worse people than us. You know, my sin wasn't that bad to, to make Jesus die on the cross. And they're quite offended by that. That you would have the temerity, the gall to call them a sinner. Well, we're going to go a little further into what the offense of the cross is today because it not only offends the unbeliever, but it doesn't set well with some people who claim to be believers as well. And yet, it's at the heart of the gospel. It is the core of salvation. Today's message in the Such a Great Salvation series is the peacemaker. The peacemaker. Because when Jesus died on the cross, He made peace between God and man, holy God and a sinful world. Jesus is our peacemaker. 
And in doing that, we see an act of atonement. In the graphic you see before you, you see that biblical word. In fact, it's one that we can say in English, it's wholly a biblical word. Because that wasn't an English word. It wasn't in the English language. The concept is throughout the Bible. But in English, the word atonement was coined to translate the Bible. Speaking of what Jesus did for us to reconcile sinful man with a holy God, He made atonement. He brought two together as one. In fact, as you look at the definition from the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, it tells us that the English word comes from the 16th century. It was originally two words at one. God made two into one at one meant. You see how we put them together and sounded them out differently and it became atonement. That phrase at one meant speaking of the reconciliation between God and man. We first read it of all places in 1513 in the writings of Sir Thomas More, who was later canonized by the Catholic Church because he was put to death for standing up to King Henry VIII. He was a Catholic scholar and churchman. Sir Thomas More, in 1513 in his writings, speaking of the reconciliation, he translated one of the biblical Greek words as at one moment. And that thought was picked up of all people by his Protestant counterpart, William Tyndale, who Thomas More hated for translating the Bible into the English language. But Tyndale used the same word, atonement, in 1526. And we've taken that word, atonement, to speak of what God did for us in salvation. As you see, the, 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 uh, the definition in the International Standard Encyclopedia, we read it off the screen. It says, to atone is to bring together. Reconciliation is at the heart of atonement. To atone is to bring together in mutual agreement with the added idea in theology of reconciliation through the vicarious suffering of one on behalf of another. Remember, vicarious is substituting yourself for another. The vicarious suffering. Substitutionary atonement is a theological term that we use. Some people agree because it's taught in the Bible and others chafe at the concept. Now, the theology word is here. We can't get around it. When we come to this core teaching of Scripture, atonement there are a number of words, Hebrew and Greek, that speak to this. As I say, the concept of atonement, God paying the price for sinners to save them, is from the book of Genesis right through the book of Revelation. It's woven throughout Scripture. There are words that I don't expect you to remember the meaning of. There's words like propitiation, which means to satisfy or deflect or extinguish the wrath of God towards sinners. There's a similar word that's sometimes used interchangeably from propitiation. That's expiation, which means to cover sin, to wash it away. In fact, it's used to translate the name for the Ark of the Covenant. On the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, remember, 
was the, was the judgment seat. That was where God's throne was. But once a year on the day of atonement, blood was applied there. And the judgment seat becomes the mercy seat. Which we see in Scripture as we prayed this morning as God's throne of grace in Hebrews chapter 4. The concepts of atonement are woven throughout Scripture. But sometimes they seem to be over our heads. So I want to I don't want to I don't want to dumb anything down because you can't do that to scripture. But Jesus spoke in ways we can understand. Scripture gives us pictures, metaphors and pictures of atonement. One we'll see later for instance is the lamb of God that helps us to understand what God did for us in atonement. So the peacemaker first that's what atonement's all about. Reconciliation. Making peace between warring parties. And we see in Scripture so clearly that through Jesus, we have peace with God. Jesus is our peacemaker. Scripture lauds peacemaker. Remember in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, one of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. For they will be called sons of God. And I've sometimes wondered why the peacemakers are in there. It's nice for people to do that. But why does God have special blessing upon peacemakers? Because peacemakers at heart are reconcilers. Atoners. And this reflects Jesus. For that is the heart of His mission to earth is to make atonement to reconcile sinners and God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus, he epitomized the peacemaker. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, we read, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is your peacemaker. Through faith in Him, you have peace with God through faith in what He did for you. And what He did is atonement. The cross is the heart of atonement. Some people say, I don't want to focus on the cross. Just Easter. Give me the empty tomb. I'm all about the resurrection life. But that is the finale of atonement. Death could not hold Jesus because He's the sinless Lamb of God. If Jesus had stayed in the tomb, He could not atone for us for He would have died from His sin. But He was sinless. He could pay the price for ours and God raised Him to new life. And now through faith, you can live through Jesus. Jesus came to make peace. I love a good quote. That's no surprise to you. One of the great preachers of the Great Awakening was a he was, a, he was an associate with the Wesley brothers, who are heroes of mine. John Wesley, the founder of Methodism, the man from Aldersgate. When we were in London a couple of years ago, I made my son Mike find the spot where the chapel was, where John Wesley, after years as a pastor and missionary, got saved. It was a little Moravian chapel on Aldersgate Street in London. <laughs> and I found it. It's a parkade now. <laughs> so there we were. I knelt and prayed on a sidewalk by a big concrete parkade where there was a little bitty plaque about that big site of Moravian Chapel where John Wesley was saved. 
I love his brother Charles. He was the great hymn writer of the, uh, of the Methodist movement. So many of his hymns, And Can It Be, is a particular favorite of mine. But they had an associate, also from Oxford, also a member of the Holy Club, a man who was a far greater preacher than either of the Wesley brothers. He began in the Methodist movement, but because they were Armenian persuasion and theology and he was more of a Calvinist, uh, he separated from the Methodist movement. He was a man who didn't want to found a denomination. He didn't want to write books so his name would be remembered. He wanted to preach salvation, the atonement. And he preached 18,000 times minimum throughout his life both in England in the 1700s and made seven grueling missionary trips to the United States, the New World. It wasn't the U.S. yet because he died in 1770. He was a particular friend of the rationalist Benjamin Franklin. In fact, when he came to Philadelphia, Franklin built a tabernacle that would seat 1,100 people so more people could hear him. None of the churches were big enough. His name was George Whitfield. He's all but forgotten today. And Whitfield said of Jesus' mission that Jesus was God and man in one person. That God and man might be happy together again. Jesus was our peacemaker. Fully God and fully man. Only He could make atonement for Adam's helpless race. But in making peace, Scripture is very clear that the form of that atonement, as we saw in the definition earlier of vicarious, one substituting for another, in making peace, Jesus took our place. When Jesus was on the cross, everyone looks to the cross and must see the fact that that's what our sin deserves. That's what your sin and my sin deserve. For the wages of sin was death. And Jesus took our place. This was prophesied so clearly in Scripture. A fundamental teaching in Isaiah chapter 53. The suffering servant. Verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by His wounds, we are healed. He did it for you. He took your punishment upon Himself. By His wounds, we are healed. In the writings of the Apostle Paul and Peter others, they always communicate to you that Jesus, when He was on the cross, He bore your sin. He had no sin of His own. He was God's perfect lamb. But He took your sin and paid the price fully for it there. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, verse 20, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making His appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made Him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in Him we might become 
the righteousness of God. He became sin for us. It was your sin that He bore on the cross. That's made so clear in 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 24, Peter writes, For He Himself, speaking of Jesus, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. Jesus substitutionary death. He took our place. But I told you, that concept bothers people. I'm amazed. I heard just a number of years ago the things I've seen in my lifetime. It's just a brief span of years in the bigger picture of things. But things have changed so radically from when I was young and in Bible school. There's something we call today the new perspective on Paul. Well, that sounds exciting. You can read books. It gives scholars a chance to write more about God's great servant, the Apostle Paul. But the new perspective of Paul, though written by ostensibly evangelical scholars, it's rooted and based in false teaching. The teaching of classic liberals against the literal teaching of the Bible, men like Albert Schweitzer and others. And they've taken away the heart of atonement. They say, no, that substitutionary atonement, that's not worthy of God. That's terrible. It has to mean something else. Very clearly, as you've seen this morning, Scripture teaches it, but no, they, they don't believe it. Jesus wasn't our substitute. He was a, just a good teacher. He was an example. He claims he didn't coin the term, but he certainly popularized it. There's a teacher a scholar named Steve Chalk. And he says that substitutionary atonement, Jesus, the Son of God, suffering for somebody else's sin, he calls it cosmic child abuse. A horrific, horrific thought. That's unworthy of a loving God. And others have maybe denied that term, but they've certainly followed its wrong thinking and wrong teaching because as you saw very clearly taught in scripture God was not sending Jesus there as an act of anger or petulance or punishment it's an act of love grace sacrificial love Jesus was our substitute there's no other way around it one of my podcasts that I think it's wonderful. It comes out every day. You can listen to a, a daily teaching. A man born in Glasgow, Scotland, but have lived for decades in the U.S. In fact, he's pastored for decades a church in Cleveland, but he still speaks with a beautiful Scottish accent. His name is Alistair Begg. Some of you know of him or listen to his preaching and teaching. Alistair Begg of Jesus and his substitutionary atonement says this, Jesus did not come to live as an example of how to die as a martyr, but as a substitute, taking the place that we deserve in order that we might enjoy what we don't deserve. This is good news. Let us tell our friends. And I'd say this is the heart of the good news. This is what grace is. 
Not giving you what you deserve. Giving you what you don't deserve. And all of that is made possible only through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross in our place. The pictures that Scripture gives us to help us understand this profound truth, this mystery of God's great love for us. One is that Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. In fact, I believe the entire Old Testament sacrificial system is God preparing us for this truth. <clears throat> preparing us to understand the truth of Jesus' <clears throat> shed blood on our behalf. Every one of those animals sacrificed for the sin of another pointed forward to Jesus. Though the Old Testament, we see that system instituted throughout the Old Testament, God teaches that the blood of bulls and goats cannot avail for the sin of man. It can't wash it away. It was only through the faithfulness of God's people, that faith in God, that those people found Him. And today it's made clear because now we look back on the ultimate sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice, once and for all, Jesus, the Lamb of God. Remember John chapter 1, <clears throat> verse 29. We've been looking at the twelve apostles throughout the summer. Many of them started as disciples, followers of John the Baptist. Oh, what a day it was when John pointed to the Messiah. John 1.29 The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God. Those words communicated so much that He was God's perfect Lamb. They didn't understand it at the time. They could not conceive that their teacher, their master, their rabbi, the Messiah, <clears throat> would be sacrificed for us. That He truly was the Lamb of God. First Peter, a passage that I've loved for years and point to often. First Peter chapter 1 speaks of Jesus the Lamb of God. For, Peter writes, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, <clears throat> but with the precious blood of Christ, <clears throat> a lamb without blemish or defect. Jesus was the acceptable sacrifice. For He was fully God, fully human. He represented us to God perfectly. He was one of us. But He represented God to us as well. He is the mediator who built the bridge that we could be saved. Jesus, the precious Lamb. Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, the Apostle Paul reflects on the meaning of Jesus' sacrificial death. That His shed blood is atonement for us in a way that 
bulls and goats, their blood never could be. Beginning in verse 21, Paul writes, But now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Him as an atonement through faith in His blood. Jesus is the perfect Lamb of God. He bore our sins. <laughs> Nobody could put things together more bluntly, more forcefully, but more truthfully than Martin Luther. <laughs> I love his, his bluntness. Speaking of Jesus bearing our sins rather than us trying to earn God's favor through good works, whether they be sacraments or whatever, Luther was fighting against that thought in the old Catholic church. Luther wrote, Either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, if it is lying on your back, you're lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you're free, and you will be saved. Now, choose what you want. Who bears your sin today? Did Jesus bear it on the cross? You put your faith in what He did for you? That sacrifice of atonement, of reconciliation? Have you trusted Him personally? Do you know that you are saved now and forever because of His perfect sacrifice once and for all? What a beautiful picture. God allowed us to understand Jesus the pure Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Another picture of the atonement is financial in nature. We hear the word ransom and we think of people in captivity, people captured, people prisoners, and their family paying a ransom will do anything, pay anything to protect them and to save them. Scripture says Jesus paid our ransom. We were the ones enslaved. We were the ones in chain. We were in bondage, Scripture says, to sin and death. Sin is who we are by our nature. Death is the outcome. Because God is holy. Sin cannot be in His presence. But God is also life and love. And when you remove yourself by sin from God's presence, there's nothing awaiting you but death. Death, in its essence, means separation. Sin separates you from God, from spiritual life. And eventually, the mortal body dies and the soul's separated from it. Families are separated. It's all about separation. But what's atonement? Reconciliation. Bringing us back together restoring us. Jesus was willing to pay that price to ransom you from sin and death. I understand that. 
The deep theological truths Scripture makes them clear to us as they speak to us. Jesus, our sacrificial lamb. Jesus, our ransom. Jesus, He took our place. He stepped in front of you and took the bullet for you that was rightfully aimed at you. You earned it. It's your wages. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus took it on your behalf. Oh, the grace of God that took that. Speaking of the ransom passages, there's, there, it's not as, as we don't see as much of that teaching as we do in the Lamb of God, but it's profound all the same. Matthew chapter 20, Jesus reflecting on how His people are going to show leadership different than the world does. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as, he points to himself as the example, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The ransom was his life, his very life. First Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes in verse 5 and 6, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. The only price that could set you free, Jesus paid it. He laid down His life as a ransom for us. This is the heart of the Gospel. This is the good news. Today, people like to steer clear of it. They get squeamish at thoughts like the, the wrath of God. Thinking that somehow the wrath of God is like the ancient Greek gods where God is capricious and often angry at mere mortals. And we have to bribe Him and do things to appease Him to remove that wrath. That's how the ancient Greeks used the word propitiation. But Scripture doesn't tell us that. Scripture does not say that a price is paid so that an angry God will love us. Biblically, propitiation happens because a loving God wants to save us from His holy wrath on sin. Sin in which our souls are destroyed. It's the poison that kills all mankind. God is the loving God who takes the punishment upon Himself to satisfy His holiness and justice that we might be saved. Oh, how He loves you and me. A wonderful old hymn, one of my favorites, at Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. <laughs> Isn't that God's love? God's love for us. F.B. Meyer, <laughs> my final quote this morning. It's the least politically correct quote of all of them. Because F.B. Meyer wasn't from our politically correct times. He lived and died in the last century. He was 
an English associate of Dwight Moody, Moody Bible Institute and so forth. He was like the English Dwight Moody, preached evangelistic rallies. He pastored inner city churches. He didn't want to be out with the the well-to-do or in the peaceful villages. He wanted to be in the crime-ridden inner cities of London. And those are the chapels he always ministered in. He was very blunt as well. And when it came to thoughts of the atonement, the incredible price that God paid for your salvation, that you could now live this life that you're living today. (laughs) F.B. Meyer wasn't impressed, to put it mildly. (laughs) This is what he said. He said, Jesus Christ, speaking of that ransom he paid, Jesus Christ has bought us with his blood. But alas, he has not had his money's worth. He paid for all. And He has but a fragment of our energy, time and earnings. By an act of consecration, let us ask Him to forgive the robbery of the past and let us profess our desire to be henceforth utterly and only for Him, His slaves, owning no master other than Himself. (laughs) Strong words. But true. Scripture says that in light of the atoning work of Jesus, what lives ought we live? Scripture says, live a life worthy of the high calling we have. Oh, so much of our life is so selfish. It's all about us. The daily grind. The banality of it all. We go through the same thing, do the same things every day. Rarely giving thought to the Lamb of God. The ransom paid for us. The most important event in human history. Friends, we need to dwell on it. As Hebrews says, we need to pay more careful attention to it. And let it remold our lives in the light of it. We have a message to share. As Alistair Begg said, this is good news. Tell your friends. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You for the atonement, at-one-ment, what Jesus did to reconcile God and man. He, our perfect mediator, the man, Christ Jesus, fully God, fully human, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, we thank You for Jesus' death for us, substitutionary in nature, profound, eternal impact. Lord, Jesus did for us what we could not do. We could die for our sins and be lost for eternity, and that's it. But Lord, He took took that punishment. He paid that price with His blood. But He was sinless. And through resurrection and our faith in Him, Lord, in Christ, our sin is paid for. His death on the cross becomes our death to sin. The life He now lives becomes our eternal life. All through faith in our loving Savior. Lord, we thank You for Jesus, His love, shown to us in its fullest extent as He died in our place 
on the cross. May we behold the wondrous cross in the time of our devotions and as we live our daily lives, keep it ever before us. May it be the north star by which we guide our lives. Lord, we entrust ourselves into Your hands, fresh and new, to be Your ambassadors of this life-changing message. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you today and keep you.